Hello. Good morning, Church in the Rock. How are you doing today? This is not part of the sermon. Just warning you. I was just looking at my window today. If you don't know, my window faces the parking lot. It was cool to see you guys drive in today. It was cool to see you talking in the parking lot and hearing you speaking in the lobby and stuff like that. I was just reflecting on how neat it is that we get to do church together. That we choose to come together once a week or more for some and to just worship our God together. I don't know if you ever get into the place where it just becomes a habit or you feel guilty about it or it's like something, I should do that. But if you stop and think about it, if you're choosing to spend time with a group of people to worship your creator God together, where you take an hour and a half or two hours of your week to fully focus and to either serve or to attend and to worship God. And I just thought that was so neat when I was thinking about it this morning. It is, I really mean this, a joy and a pleasure to be with you and to worship with you today. You guys ready to get going? Awesome. Good deal. All right, we're continuing our story with Abraham today. But before we do, I just want to talk to you a little bit about being wealthy. When I was in school, I started, this was even before I went to college and before I realized or succumbed to the uh, idea of going into ministry. And so while I was at school, I just started serving in the local church of where I was going. So I started serving in the youth ministry. And after about a year of being a student leader in the youth ministry, uh, an opportunity to take an internship came out of that service. And so I took that internship, which was one of the things that propelled me into full-time ministry. But in that internship, one of the things that they did for me, because I lived about 45 minutes from campus, was that they found a host home for me for the summer during the course of the internship. And so that's how I met Janice and Kevin Davidson, some of the kindest, most generous, most welcoming people I've had the uh, pleasure of meeting in my life. They set up a whole entire room for me. They let me uh, fish in their pond. They encouraged me to have my friends and young adult group over. They really created a space for me inside of their family. Everybody in their family loved me and cared for me. I felt welcomed except for their little dog. Everybody else really, really felt loved and welcomed by them. But one thing stuck out to me with my time living with them, which is that they stocked their freezer with DiGiorno frozen pizza. And they gave me an all-access pass to the pizza, as much as you want. I think she actually enjoyed buying more pizza to supply it there for me. And there's the thing. Up until that point in my life, I have been uh, more accustomed to eating the dollar pizza from Walmart, okay? The kind with, like, the square pieces of meat. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we know they're not right. Or Jack's Pizza when they're, like, five for ten bucks. That was the type. So to eat as much as I wanted DiGiorno five, six dollar pizza to myself, I felt like I had made it. I felt wealthy. I was, like, calling my mom, like, Mom, I made it. I made it, the dreams come true. I have DiGiorno pizza as much as I want. I felt for the first time in my life wealthy. And I don't know if you can relate to this or not. Maybe it's that time you really splurged and went on that vacation and you had that full access uh, bar or food or restaurant that you just go and eat at. Or maybe you got that bonus at the end of the year and you really treated yourself to something. 
or maybe you really got that promotion, or maybe you just got that really, really comfortable robe for Christmas or your birthday, and you just feel like a million bucks every time you wear it. I don't know about you, but, the, but most likely every single one of us at some time have felt an abundance of possessions or materials or something that would qualify you as feeling wealthy at one time or not in your life. And so picking up our story today of Abram, we're going to start with Genesis chapter 13. We're going to skip to verse 5. And it says this, Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep, goats, herds of cattle, and many tents. We see at this point in Abram's life that he, he had become wealthy. The Hebrew word here actually means heavy. He was so wealthy, it was oppressive or heavy to him. That's how wealthy. He wasn't just DiGiorno pizza rich. He was like for real rich, okay? Abram was rolling in it. And so much so that the people around him were blessed in wealth. This is just a quick side note, but did you know that your spiritual wealth, that your spiritual relationship has the same effect? The more that you are enriched in your relationship with God, it can actually spill out into the relationships around you. And you can actually benefit the people around you based on your connection to God. And so we see that Lot's increased in wealth because of his relationship and proximity to Abram. And so Abram at this time, after everything that he's been through, God's been blessing him with wealth, with possessions, with material gain, and has become very wealthy. Being rich in the Bible is kind of a weird thing. It's a case-by-case -case scenario. We have many examples of people that became physically or uh, materialistically rich. We have Abram who maintains so much. We'll see it later on that he got to such, uh, such a status that he was considered a prince, a nomadic prince, and other people tried to uh, get political relationships with him, trying to secure uh, ties with him and alliances. Jacob becomes wealthy even though his father-in-law in every circumstance tries to unfairly cut him out of the deal, but God still blesses him. Joseph becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And during King Solomon's time, 1 Kings 10 says that silver was consider considered like stone because it was so common in the land. So we see all of these people that are wealthy. And then on top of that, we have a list of people that are blessed by wealth. The prophet Elijah is blessed by a couple that literally builds a house and creates a room so that anytime he's traveling by in the vicinity, he can Airbnb with them for free. Just like stop over and we'll host you. Jesus relied on the blessing and generosity of a group of women that cooked and cared for his needs as he traveled around teaching and, uh, and evangelizing. We see that Jesus was blessed by Joseph of Arimathea who bought and gave his own gravesite, very expensive piece of property for Jesus' body. And even the apostles model for us going around itinerating, building funds from churches to go on missions trips. And so we see wealth all over the Bible. I didn't take the time to go through this week and count every single verse, but others have. And they say there's something about like 500 verses that directly teach on wealth in the Bible. Of the 40-ish parables that we have from Jesus, 11 of them mention, if not directly teach on finances and money. I really, really do not believe that God wants you to be impoverished and poor. But I'm also not up here to teach you how to become a millionaire. I'm here simply just to try to guide our conversation and our faith walk in discipleship to God. And whether God blesses you with much wealth 
or whether he keeps you in a place of faith day by day, which both are in the Bible, I believe that the same attitude towards God comes out. The same teaching that we're supposed to approach him comes out. And so today is less about how to steward your finances and definitely not how to become a millionaire or become DiGiorno rich or Abraham rich, but much more about just following Jesus and keeping him the first and foremost in our minds. So can we just pray before we continue on and then we're going to jump a little bit more into this. Father God, thank you for your people. Thank you, God, what a pleasure it is to join and follow them every single week, Father. To gather in your house and online, through text and phone, God, through conversation, through a handshake, Father, and to just worship you. Lord, we give you honor today, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So whether God blesses you with much or with little, two things probably apply to you. One is that you have at some point had wealth in this room. It doesn't have to be a lot. My kids uh, have felt wealth with just a bag of gummy worms. More than they could eat and wanting to hoard it all to themselves. And the second thing is, is that once you've felt wealth, immediately you have the potential for the sin of greed in that. And God teaches us to not rely on our wealth, but to rely on his promise to provide for us. Two quick classic verses on this. Matthew 6, 31 through 33 says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you. And Hebrews 13.5 says, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. Wherever you're at in your journey to wealth, or as your bank account says, the same idea remains is that you're supposed to have a reliant relationship upon your father God. And that's what Abram's going to teach us here in a little bit today. But before we do that, we have to have a conversation about relationship with our money. Because money is not inherently bad. There's nothing necessarily evil about money in itself. But what it does in us can create sin. And when it comes to our finances, it's healthy for us to frequently have a DTR. You have to define the relationship with your money. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28 says this. I think the best place to start with our relationship in regards to our finances and material wealth is the beginning. And so going to Genesis chapter 1, 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 28. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This is just a quick side note. This has nothing to do with today's sermon. But this is the scripture, I believe, that directly goes against the mandate in Florida about riding manatees. We were born to be dominion and rule over the fish of the earth. And if I want to ride the porpoise, I'm going to ride the porpoise. Some of you are clapping at that, but you won't clap at anything else in this sermon, and I love it. That's okay. That's okay. The idea here is that we, in God's image, 
or a better understanding of that is as a reflection of God's image or his character, rule in his place here on earth. God's given some of his authority to us to rule in the lives and the world that we live here, to go out and to conquer it, go out and to maintain it, go out and to use it for our sustenance, go out and to use it to protect us and to sustain us and to provide for us. But I don't think that God surrendered full authority to it. In my position here as a pastor, I have people and volunteers and leaders that are underneath me. And I've relinquished and given them authority to go and work in those areas. And so I expect that Denise will go and love and work with your kids and teach them like I would. And if she's downstairs right now, work with them on Wednesday nights. I expect that Sydney will come and take care and pastor the team as I expect her to and lead us into worship every single week. The Jim and Julie, that if you guys want to make sandwiches or muffins in Stonehaven or switch up the coffee, then go do it. You have authority in those areas to go and make a decision and do what you feel is best with my mindset in mind. Because the thing is, is that if Sydney came up here and started leading us through a playlist of Taylor Swift every week, do you think that there wouldn't be a critiquing conversation for me on that? A little bit of heart adjustment. Sid, I know you love this, but maybe not during service, right? And so God gives us the authority on earth to have authority over earth, but not to worship earth. To still remember the person that has ultimate authority in our life, which is the one that put us here the one that created us from dirt, the one that gave us all of the finances, all of the wealth, all of whatever in our life. And so I think a much better idea in regards to our relationship with our finances to think of ourselves as a steward versus an owner. Stewards still have authority over the things that their masters gave them. Stewards still operate with the power of the person that put them into authority. But stewards don't maintain ownership of those resources. They use them in ways that will glorify the master. They use them in ways that they think, oh, the master would want me to use this this way. And they don't use it for selfish and their own personal gain. Or if they do, they're quickly taken out of that position and replaced by somebody that will steward it well. When I think of money and I think of wealth, and I think of finances, the sin that's so quick to the cuff and again, what I really, I keep saying wealth and finance and rich, but you don't have to have more than two pennies rubbed together to feel these things. It's not a number in the bank account. It's the idea of merely living that you have an opportunity for these sins. Greed is right there underneath the service. That desire and pull to want more, the desire and pull to keep what you have and not give it away. This last week, in this idea of thinking of being a steward versus an owner, I had an example that came to my mind, just living life, is that my sister called me. She's, uh, her car went out, and it cost more than it would have cost to fix it than to just buy a new one, so she's been looking around. And so recently, she was looking in her area where she lives a couple hours away, and just the whole market was dried up, couldn't really find anything. And then a car happened to come up about 30 minutes from my, where I live, and she said, hey, I will, I will wire you the money, but will you go look at this car? If it looks out good, would you just pick it up for me, and I'll come pick it up. So I went out and did it, sent the money over and everything. It worked out just fine, so she put the money in my account, and I transferred it to this other person's account, and we got the car for her. As I was driving it back from picking it up, I got a phone call from the hospital. 
two ye- over two years ago now, we had a labor and delivery from our youngest child, and they had a bill that they've just been sitting on, and they finally decided to disclose it and send it back to us. Much less than the price I just paid for the car, but guess which of those two transactions I cared about a lot more? The one for the car, which was much more, or the one for the bill, which was much less? But one of them, I was stewarding the finances, and one of them was my own personal money, and it bothered me a lot more, spending my own money, than I went and spent three times as much on a car that's my sister's money. Do you understand what I'm saying is, what is your relationship with your finances? Do you hold it with a closed fist, saying, this is mine? Are you the child with the bag of gummy worms that says, these are mine, and you can't have any? Child, I paid for those gummy worms. This was a special treat, and I will take them away just as soon as I gave them to you. Owners want to keep it. Owning your money and seeing your money as my money, I earned this with my skill, gives you the place for greed in your life. And it gives you a mindset that says, there is something in my life that wasn't given to me from God. And so, what is your relationship with your finances? Do you view yourself as a steward or as an owner? Do you view it ultimately as God given to you to use wisely to glorify God or as self-earned confidence? It's so easy to have a trust in a bank account number than it is to trust God. It's so easy that when that number ships, either positive or negative, the relationship with God is immediately affected. God, where are you? Or, God, I don't need you. And it's so easy to use our finances as a way to, as a substitute for who God is and who he's supposed to be in our life. Right? Going back to our verse in Hebrews 13, 5. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you and I will never abandon you. Again, this isn't a sermon about how to get rich or it's bad to be rich. I hope you're all millionaires. That way you can give to the church and we can build the gym that I want to build back here. That'd be great. I hope you have wealth. But don't let your wealth define you. Don't let your wealth become a stumbling block in your relationship with God. Satan loves getting into our minds and trying to get us to believe that we can have our cake and eat it too. I never understood. I literally had to Google this week, what does this saying mean? because I hear it all the time. But it simply means is you can't have a cake, because if you eat your cake, then the cake's gone. But Satan likes to trick us in saying that, you know what, you could actually be the master of your money. You actually can have all the glory, all the power, keep it for yourself, maintain your wealth, and still have a relationship with God. He uses this tactic on Jesus. He uses it on Adam and Eve at the very beginning, saying you could have equality with God. Take the reins in your life and trust yourself instead of God. He's not trustworthy. He's not worthy of your trust. You need to go take care of your own life. In Matthew 4, 8 through 9, Satan says this. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Satan honestly has the authority and the power on earth to give you the things that he promises. 
He says in Luke, it says the same story. He says, I've been given this authority to distribute this. And so I really believe that he could have given Jesus the glory of all the kingdoms and to be worshipped by them and be the ruler of all of them. All it cost him was his worship. Will you worship me or you worship God? Look at everything I can give you. And your wealth wants to do the same to you. It wants to say, worship me, worship a number, worship possession, worship more gain, and put me, don't even have to stop worshiping God, just put me before God. And you can have all of this and a relationship with God. But it's a lie. Remember, Satan's mission statement is to what? Kill, steal, and destroy. He's called the father of lies for good reason. Because the side note is saying is that when you switch your worship off of God and you start worshiping your finances, you create for yourself a terrible mess of situations. You create for yourself sinful situations that will take your eye off of God and realize all of a sudden you start trying to control your life, provide for yourself instead of trusting that God will do it. I'm not telling you to go home and be a bum and quit your job and just say, God's going to send me money and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Go out and be a hard worker. Go work. But is your relationship with your finances one of ownership or one of stewarding the resources that God has blessed you with? And he can bless you with much. He can bless you with little. But his promise is to always provide for you. And so I'm believing that sometimes in my life, it's been harder financially. There's been seasons of my life. I was raised in a household that finances were hard. They were tight. But you know what that taught me? It taught me that God always provides. I was talking to a friend, the one that came up recently, about a month or so ago. And he was talking about, he said, you know, I didn't realize we were raised poor. I just knew we couldn't have as many Christmas gifts as the other kid. But I had a great childhood. I had a great life. We couldn't have all the cereal that we wanted. That was mostly because my mom cared about sugar content. We couldn't have steak. We couldn't have all these things. They were seen as treats. They were seen as something to be enjoyed at certain occasions. But I never felt like we didn't have enough. And in the times when I knew that we didn't have enough, in the times of unemployment, in the times I heard my parents talking about financial stuff, or my mom worrying, We'd come home, and there'd be a letter in the mailbox with a check for just the right amount of mortgage. And then in that next month, as soon as that check ran out, my dad would get a job. And this happened again and again and again. Enough times to say to me that God cares about us. He cares more about what I eat, what I wear, about the things that I have going on in my life than I do. And he has more resources and ability to provide for those things than I can. But my gut instinct is to always rely on myself. Josh, you need to work harder. Josh, you need to, you need to save more. Josh, you can't support this. Josh, you shouldn't tithe. Josh, you shouldn't give this away. Josh, you shouldn't do this because you need more. And the reminder to me in this today's story, which we haven't gotten very far in it, but we're going to, is to trust God. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, it says this, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can't take anything with us when we leave it. So we have enough food and clothing. Let us be content. 
But people who long to be rich fall into temptation are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrow. Not money, but the love of money is root of all evil. We did a big study on love just a few months ago. And really, it's where are you giving your heart? Where are you giving your attention your focus? Is your primary goal to increase a certain number or to attain a certain status? If it is, it sets you up for a hard life. Let's pick up our text today. We're going to uh, Genesis chapter 13. We're going to start with 5 and we're going to read through. Genesis chapter 13, verse 5. It says, Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very rich with flocks of sheep and goats and herds and cattle and many tents. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen, Abraham and Lot. At that time, Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land. Verse 8, finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you have land left, if you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land to the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zor. The whole area is well watered everywhere, like the Garden of Eden or the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinning against the Lord. We're going to look at just a few responses today. We're going to look at Lot's response. We're going to look at Abram's response. We're going to look at God's response to Abram in regards to this story. And then finally, we're going to finish with our response to the text today. And the very first thing I want to direct your attention to is that Lot's eyes dictated his decision. Lot, there's no realm of scenario in this world where Lot should have allowed, him, allowed Abram to let him take first choice. Lot was the younger man in this relationship. He should have given seniority and authority to Abram. He should have said, thank you, Father, for what you've done for me. Thank you, Uncle. My riches are because of you. Because of traveling with you, you taught me how to do all this. You've kept me safe. You took me in when my father died. He should have said, with gratitude, no, please take the first pick, and wherever you go, I'll go. But instead, his eyes were bigger than his heart. And he looked and he saw how easy life would be. Look how well watered it is. Look how easy it is. I remember just a little bit ago when I was in Egypt and how easy and massive the buildings were and how rich they were. I want that life. And so Lot chooses to let his eyes make a decision for him instead of what he knows should have been done. He lets his integrity slip. This is not maybe a huge thing in your eyes. Maybe this isn't a big, big uh, blatant sin. But remember what we said last week is that sin is progressive, right? Right? One little slip can big, be a big moral failure later on. And so the interesting thing with Lot is that in Genesis 13, 12, we see that he moves near Sodom, which is known to be a city of sin. 
Then in Genesis 14, 12, it says that, uh, that it says that Lot lived in Sodom. So he moves in 13 near Sodom. And then in 14, he's in Sodom. And then a couple of chapters later in 19, he's sitting at the gates, which is seen as the center of the heart for the city. See, the gates of a city is where all the business comes in and out. It's where they held court. It's where lawyers and everybody stood to make uh, political and uh, decisions about um, land and profit and marriages. And it's where people come in and go out. And so really the gates of the city were seen as the heartthrob of a city. One commentator said it this way, the city gates were not only the place where the market was located, but also the center of life of the city. They functioned as the center for public life, for as the place for meetings of others and for assemblages. Here, markets were held, special commodities available. In other words, it was at the gates that business was transacted, affairs were settled, and the news of the community was circulated. They were places critical for a city's functioning and existence suggesting that they were a city's life force. In other words, Lot is all sold in for Sodom. He moves near, he moves in, and then he moves to the center, all because of a simple decision to let his eyes choose for him. Life would be so easy. Wouldn't have to dig a well, wouldn't have to go water, wouldn't have to be a nomad, could have the comfortability of living in a city. And he looks right and he sees all of these comfortable things and greed takes place in Lot's life. And ultimately it's that one decision right here that leads to him losing everything he has later on in the book. Everything he has, everything he cares for, he loses it in some of the most heartbreaking ways. Because he had a choice to make. Are you going to be greedy or are you going to be going to be uh, thankful? And he chooses to let his eyes make a response for him. Abram's response to all this. If you take Lot's response and juxtapose this to Abraham's, it's completely different. We see that Abram is exhibiting growth in his faith at this point. We spent two sermons basically bringing up Abram's flaws. This is our third in the series, and we've spent the first two showing all the ways that Abram stumbled and failed on his beginning journey. And this is the first place that we see Abram finally fully submitting and coming into obedience before the Lord. The original call was to leave the city of Ur, all your family, and follow me. And so he leaves, and he lets his father come, and he lets Lot follow along. And then in the distant past, just the recent past was Egypt where he lies about his situation, lies and tries to control the narrative, and he just makes dishonest gain. He makes all these moral failures. But the first thing that we see in this decision right here is that Abram trusts God. We see him fully surrender control. Lot, you picked. Whatever way I have to go, left or right, hard or easy, I know that God's going to provide. I love that we see that Lot at the first time says, or Abram says, I'm following you, God. Whatever you desire, I'll follow you. And we see that God has him go into the promised land. God's faithful and true to himself, and he keeps him there, and he keeps Abram, and he provides for him. And Abram's wealth, compared to Lot's, continues to grow. Number two we see is that Abram chooses family relationships over wealth and possession. Unfortunately, I've had... I've heard stories and seen it personally where wealth, where finances, where money disrupts family. 
I've seen it where unpaid bill or, uns- or foreseen somebody saying, you owe me this, destroys relationships. Early on in marriage, Amy and I said and made a vow. One of the vows we made to each other is, Amy, even if it's at a cost to ourselves, ne- let us never let finances destroy family. Because it is a commitment. Sometimes in family, sometimes disputes come up, and sometimes it can be really hard. Sometimes things come up that are at a cost to you. And Abram shows that he values his family relationships over being right. He shows that he values family relationships over Lot submitting to his authority. He had every right to say, Lot, you've been with me long enough. I've carried you long enough. I've taught you. Look at all of this that you have because of me. It's time for you to go to the desert. And I'm going over here. He had all authority and right to say that. But Abram trusts God and he chooses family relationships over finances. And thirdly, Abram shows integrity during prosperity. Thomas Carlyle says it this way, Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are hundreds that stand adversity. And Chuck Swindoll says it this way, Most of us rise to meet adversity with our best character. However, our true character comes out when things are going really well. I was at lunch with a council member this last week, and we're just talking about this idea of how easy it is that as soon as life gets good, I let go of my relationship with God. How easy is as soon as I don't need him anymore that my prayer life lacks? How easy it is as soon as the situation that I've been calling and praying and crying about, asking him to intercede, is resolved that I realize that I don't need God? And you see Abram here in prosperity, in richness, in fullness, in increasing wealth, still trusting God. And so he shows that his integrity is strong in prosperity and in adversity. Most of us are conditioned from birth, secular and in the church, to rise to meet adversity. Pull yourself up. Work hard. Make a name for yourself. The underdog always wins. We're conditioned to work hard and to win against the odds. But it's so easy to lose our relationship, a trusting relationship with God when life is going well. And so the question today that comes out of Abraham's life is, are you trusting God when things are well and when things are going poorly? And Abram exhibits, one, that he trusts God. Two, that he chooses and prioritizes family over wealth. And three, that he shows his integrity during his prosperity. I don't know about you, but I've fully seen this in my life. When I'm not going through a trial... When I'm not being tested, when life is going well, is my relationship going strong with God? And next we see God's response to all of this that's happening. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 through 18. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I'm giving you all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go, walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. And so Abrams has his first test that he responds well to. The test of family conflict, the test of prosperity. And he responds well in faith. God trusts God 
Abram trusts God. And so what does God do? What's God's response to Abram's faith and trust? He affirms the promises that he's been speaking to him time and time again. Abram, here's the promise for you. Here's the thing that I'm promising. And God shows that he's faithful to himself. And he takes him out in the land that he called him to. And he said, look everywhere. Look all over these plains. And now I want you to go walk it. Abram's in the promised land. He says, now I want you to go walk it. And Abram now is traveling around Canaan. And it might have felt a little different for Abram. I wonder if Abram, as every step he's taking, is realizing that it's a a step of faith and a step of owning the things and walking literally into the promise that God has spoken over his life. There might be some stuff in your life that is an act of faith for you. God, I don't understand this. God, this is actually going to be costly. God, I don't want to do this. This is actually going to be harder for me, harder for my family. But God maybe comes in that moment and reminds you of the things he's called you to. God is faithful to himself and is going to be faithful to the call he's put on your life and faithful to the things that he's promised you. I fully believe that. That God is faithful to who he is and he will be faithful to you. So God's response to Abram is that he says, I am God. And guess what? I know that it feels really hard right now. I I know that this is, was the famine even over? Was the land even nice for them yet? Was it habitable yet? I wonder if it was Abraham standing in a dusty patch of sand looking out saying, God, how are you going to make this happen? I really wish I had gone first. And God shows up and reminds him of his faithfulness. He reminds him of his promise. And so today, right now, I just wonder if in a moment of just vulnerability in between you and the Lord, if there's anything that he's reminding you of, he's called you to, he's spoken over your life. It feels impossible. It feels hard. Maybe it's a struggle. But are you reminded of God's faithfulness to you? Have your circumstances changed his promise that he spoke over your life? And lastly, we're looking at our response. Where do we go with all of these things? You know, my favorite verse in this whole chapter, in this whole story, is verse 18. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak tree belonging to Mamre. There he built another altar to the Lord. What I love about Abram's final response to everything that had just transpired is that he builds another altar. And so our response today is two things, church. One, do not neglect your communion, your worship with God. Everywhere Abram's going, all up and down Canaan, he's just building places of consecration and altars to God. This last week, I was just thinking about this. I was thinking about the areas I've been lax in my worship and in my communion with God. This last week, this text to me reminded me to build my altar. Am I waking early and seeking God before my family gets up? Am I seeking God when it's going well, even as much as I seek him when it's going hard. Do not neglect your altar. And number two, if today's text touched 
that sin and greed of you. If you felt a jump and felt a recognition in that, I just want to give you two practical pieces of advice. 1 Timothy 16, 17 through 19 says this, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Richard Foster says it this way, Without question, money has taken on a sacred character in our world, and it would do us good to find ways to defame it, defile it, trample it under our feet. So step on it, yell at it, laugh at it, list it way down on the scale of values, certainly far below friendship and cheerful surroundings and engage in the most profane act of all, give it away. The death blow to greed is generosity, church. When you feel the desire to control, when you feel a desire to cling on in a fear of losing what you've maintained and gained, practice generosity. It will remind your finances who you worship. It will put you back in a place of worshiping and trusting God. And it will put you in a right relationship of stewarding your finances versus seeking to own them. If you think this is a ploy for me to try to get your money, I don't care where you give it. Ask God. Another church, another person, your neighbor. There's been lots of times that I've given to people or to organizations outside of Church on the Rock because I felt God calling me to. God's calling you to give it. Don't hold it back. Holding on to that little bit, saying no to that, will create suffering and problems in your life. Trying to hold on to something that God gave to you will cause things like Lot to happen to you. It'll lead you down to another thing where do I trust God in this? And another thing do I trust God in this? And the sin will keep happening and growing and become worse and worse. I want to just end with Hebrews 13, 5 today. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. It's as simple as that, church. God is faithful to who he is. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will not cause you to go without what you need. Maybe not what you want, but he will always provide for what you need. I'd like to pray over you before the team leads us into worship and we close today's service. Can we just stand, please? We can do worship lighting right now. Father God, I don't know where we are at in this house today, God. Lord, if anybody's hearing judgment or condemnation from the platform today, God, I pray you just erase those things from their mind. Holy Spirit, I pray you just be working in place, Father, that you'd be speaking to each person what they need to hear today. Thank you, God, there's enough in you. Thank you, God, that you control our circumstances. Thank you, God, that all of our wealth can come from you, Father, that you can give it and you can take it just like that, Father. 
Lord, I pray for an increase of faith and trust to you today, Father God. If there's a big decision, God, if there's a follow-up from this sermon, God, that you're calling us into, I pray that there would be faith to match that call, Father. And that just like Abraham, you would just remind us, God, of your faithfulness, remind us of your character, remind us of your goodness, Father. Lord, let us not neglect our worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
thank you for the word that you gave Josh this morning. I thank you that our worship is confirming to what he was speaking, Lord, that you are more than enough. And that we have to trust you and stand firm on you and not make decisions in and of ourselves, Lord. But do what you are asking to do, even if financially it makes no sense. But it isn't about the wealth, it isn't about the gain, but it's about following you. And following you and loving you, Lord. I thank you for this congregation, Lord. I just thank you for all that you're doing in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are amazing. Um, I hope you have an amazing Sunday. Um, There is a worship night here tonight. Um, There's a group coming in. If anybody just wants to come and worship, it starts at 7. We've got a different team coming in to lead worship, so it's the perfect opportunity for those of us who serve or just need a little extra Jesus today to just come in and just be present and just worship. Um, But 7 o'clock tonight. You guys are dismissed.